0: Good morning. All right. Well, I'm excited about today and uh, the passage we're going to look at in Ephesians. We're going to start in chapter 3 and then work our way into chapter 4. So as they said, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along on screen or on your app. And uh, if you'd like to go back and look kind of what we have talked about over the past few weeks, you can do that as well. You can go back and look uh, on our podcast, listen there, look at notes there as well. What we've been doing is kind of giving you a brief overview and summary of where this where this letter was written why it was written and who it was written to so that then we could understand its purpose and how it applies to us as well. And so we take that approach with scripture that it wasn't originally written to us. The audience was different than us because it was written uh, almost 2,000 years ago in this case, in this instance. And so we have to understand that. And so we know that a man named Paul wrote this letter. We call it a book, uh, but it was really a letter that he wrote to a group of people and maybe not just one individual group, but maybe a group of people that this letter was passed around to in the area of Asia in minor, specifically to the city of Ephesus, which is why the book is called, or the letter is called, Ephesians. It was from Paul, an apostle who was a man who was sent out by Christ to teach about his coming and about his works and the salvation that he brings to anyone who would believe. He sent him out, and so Paul wrote this to these cities and to these churches that he would establish over the course of his ministry and the rest of his life. And So he's writing this letter back to this group of people. And what we've said and what we know about this city of Ephesus is it it was kind of the crown jewel. It was the treasure of Asia Minor. It was one of the larger cities we would think of today. You know, Rome or uh, New York City or one of those cities that was thriving with commerce and possibility. But it was also, because of that opportunity, it was also a place of idolatry. And, And if you'll notice, throughout all of history, those two things are typically tied together. Great opportunity in commerce is always tied to idolatry because the more things that we get, the more things we learn to idolize. The more stuff that we have, the more that we give our hearts to those things. And so if you go on a mission trip to a foreign country, you're amazed at how joyful some people are, even though they have very few material things. With the growth of material things comes the growth of idolatry as well. And so Paul is writing back to this group of people. You have opportunity, you have commerce, your businesses are thriving, your relationships are big, you're getting to know people outside of your typical sphere of influence. And so he's writing this letter to encourage them to hold on to the faith that they have. And so he began the first couple of uh, opening passages talking about the work that God did in Jesus Christ. That he redeemed us and bought us out of slavery. That we were in captivity because of our sin, which is just our rebellion against God. We transgressed, which is what the word is. That we transgressed, meaning we walked all over uh, God's rules and laws. We danced all over them and said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I think I can come up with my own way better than what you have planned for me. And so we just trampled all over God's laws. And because of that, we were placed in captivity in our sin. And we needed someone to ransom us out of that captivity. And so Paul says that God sent Jesus to do that very thing. That he had in himself these riches and this value that was enough to pay for our ransom. And so he did that and brought us out. And as a sign of that, he gave us his Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God placed in everyone who believes and trusts in God. And that with that, we are getting this inheritance that God has given us everything that is his. That He didn't just show pity on us and say, I see you in your plight. I see you in your pit. And I'm going to rescue you because someone needs to. But he did so out of his love and out of his grace that he brought us into this place that gave us a new position and a new status. We earned relationship with God as sons and daughters because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so with that we get this inheritance and because of that relationship we get intimate connection with our creator God and so Paul has been writing and teaching and telling them about this new relationship and with that new relationship not only do we get peace with God but we get peace with one another that there is no strife between us as human beings anymore for those that are found as Paul says in Christ those who trust in him. No matter what background, no matter what history, no matter what social status you have, no matter matter what economic standing or footing you stand on, that we come together as people who trust in God, in Christ, and we come together as one, unified, not because of who we are, or because of our, our former identity, or because of our outward appearance, or because of our background or history, but we come together as one people we brought into a family as sons and daughters and we're not different we are the same people who before Christ needed him and who are after receiving Christ are sons and daughters of God and so he talks about this unity that we have and as he goes throughout this letter he's going to push that and remind us of that that in the church this is the place that should be the most unified of all people in all history and all of the world and so Paul in writing this letter divides his letter into two parts and he, he, he runs the theme of unity all the way through, as we'll see in just a minute. He crosses over one section to another today, continuing this theme of oneness and unity. So he starts the very first half of his letter with these big thoughts about God, which is really theology and doctrine, who God is, who we are, what Christ has done for us. And so that's the way he typically starts a lot of his letters, because without right understanding, without right belief, we can't really live out what we're supposed to live. And so Paul doesn't leave us in this big, you know, intellectual state where a lot of us have a hard time understanding those types of writings. He breaks it down for us at the end of his letters and says, okay, based on what God has done, based on our understanding of who God is, this is now how you're supposed to live your life. And so he crosses over halfway through his letter, as we're about to cross over with him today, and he tells us how to apply all of these things that we now have and know about God and that we have in Christ. And so we're going to cross over that threshold today of this, this knowledge of God and understanding and theology of who he is into how we're supposed to live our lives. And so Paul prays for this group of people because as we saw last week, he says that there is this sense of power within the church. That God has given the church the ability to bind and loose things on the earth. That he's given us this power that we we can bring about change in our community and in our society. And it should happen in this place of unity and oneness known as the church, the people that God has saved in Christ. And so he prays for this group of people starting in chapter 3, verse 14. In this first section, we're going to read a lot of verses, so stick with me for just a minute. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. So he's talking about this unity again, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints throughout all of history, all the people who have believed, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. So Paul is writing this letter, remember. This is why this is important to understand the purpose of the letter and the audience to whom it is written. Paul is not writing this letter to non-believers. He's not writing this, this letter to people who do not believe. He's writing this to people who already believe. So if you'll notice, Paul is praying that these people who already believe would believe and know the power of God and the love of God, the breadth, the height, all the directional values that you can place, that you would know to the nth degree, in all different directions, in all different capacities, in all different abilities, this love that God has for you. They already know Christ. They've already received his love. Why would Paul pray and go to the link to pray and use these directional values and this, this understanding of who God and who Christ is? Why would he write this to this group of people? Because this group of people, according to him, already believe and trust in Christ. Why does he go to such great length to pray this? Because I can understand and you can understand. He would pray this for people who do not know God, who are separate from God, who before they had received and trusted and believed in the cross. You understand that you and I should be praying for that, and that Paul would be praying for that as well, but that's not who he's praying this prayer for. He's praying this prayer specifically for people who already believe. And the only question I have is why. And I think the reason that Paul is praying this is because he's trying to make a distinction between two sets of people those who know and believe in Christ, those who know and understand they have received the Holy Spirit, and those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And, and you say, well Gabe, those are, those are the same thing. I would tell you at one point in time, I believe those were the same thing as well. Think about it this way. Think about a relationship with your spouse or a relationship with your child. That you have a relationship because your blood, because you're kin, because your family, whether that's biologically or through adoption, that you have that distinction, you have that relationship. But if you never spend time with your spouse, or with your child, that relationship will be weakened and it will not be strengthened. And so that's all Paul is praying for. He's praying for those Christians who just show up because it's Sunday. He's praying for those people who show up because they're supposed to. He's praying for those people who do the right things because, in your context in the South, this is what we do. We're nice to one another and we equate morals with holiness. And so Paul is praying, I don't want you just to know about Jesus. I don't want you just to receive him. I want you to be filled with him. I want you to be strengthened to every nth degree of every value that is known to man. I'm praying that you would be filled with this Holy Spirit, that your life would be completely transformed and changed. And I think Paul would pray that same prayer for Decatur. I think he would write that same letter to LifePoint. And they say, look, I get it, some of you show up, and at some point point and season in your life, all of us have been in that place. And so Paul is just praying that you would step into that relationship with God, that you would be filled with the Spirit, so much so that you're walking with Him, as he'll talk about in a minute. That every step, every breath, every thought is filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. He prays the very same thing in that passage concerning Christ, that you would have Christ dwelling in your hearts. He prays it for the people in Colossae in the the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians as well. See, Paul wants to make a distinction between just showing up to church because that's what we do. And actually having a relationship with God that Christ has afforded us that we would be filled with the Spirit. That we would be in constant connection and communication with him in a way that literally transforms our lives. It gives us a path, a path of discipleship that brings about change and discovery and revelation and growth in our lives in a way that God had intended for Christ to come so much so that we would, as he uses the word, be rooted and grounded. We would not be a tree that is blown over by the wind, but it is rooted so deeply that its roots go so deep that it has the ability to break concrete structures as its roots system spreads out and destroys houses because underneath this this tree is rooted so deeply and grounded so deeply that no wind and no tornado and no hurricane and no flood could do any damage to the root system of this tree. No matter what circumstances come in your life, no matter what difficulties you have, no matter what diagnosis you receive, it is so grounded in Christ and the Holy Spirit that nothing can affect it. And that is Paul's prayer for us. That we would be rooted and grounded. And then he prays this practically impossible prayer. And I don't mean practically like almost impossible. I mean in practicality it is an impossibility. That we would be in so communion with God and fellowship with him and the Holy Spirit in Christ. We'd be studying his word, praying with him, allowing him to commune and connect and dwell inside of us. That we would be filled, this practical impossibility. That we would be filled with the fullness of God, which is completely impossible in this day, in this time, in this body of flesh. Because we're still understanding and knowing who God is. That one day when we receive our glorified bodies, we will have understanding like we do not have. Because we are bound by this flesh and this time and our finite beings and minds. But Paul says, this is my prayer for you. This is my hope and desire for you. I don't want you just to show up to church. I don't want you just to give some money or go to a small group. I don't want you just to serve because that's what we do in our context, because that's what everybody does, because it's altruistic, not because God has served you in a way that you are so compelled to to serve someone else, because it's all that you can do. There's a difference between serving because you're going to check it off the box, and well, we have an opportunity to come serve, and so I'm going to do it because people will know I didn't show up. And serving in ways that people will never ever see because you're so connected and communed with God and fellowship with Him that He calls you to step out into things that you never thought possible and you do it with no fanfare and it doesn't matter because you're doing it for Him because you're rooted and grounded in that relationship with Him. And Paul says that's when you're filled with the fullness of God. It's not because a program, it's not because a time of the week, it's not because it's convenient. But you would be so filled with the fullness of God. You're so in communion with him that you're rooted and grounded in your faith and your understanding of him, yourself, and life. And as if that's not enough, Paul continues in verse 20 and 21. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. This is beyond what we thought was possible. Already touching the ends of the spectrum, breadth, height, depth. Length, already going to the ends of our understanding and capacity, this God is able to go more abundantly beyond what we could ask or think according to the power that is not out there in the ethereal world but that is within us because we have Christ in us and the Holy Spirit deposited in us. We have that sense of power, not because of anything we've done, but to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever Amen. So Paul not only uses these directional values, but he grabs a hold of this grammatical and linguistic possibilities that go beyond what we are able to communicate. That we would know this God who's able to do more than we could ever fathom. Not just these miracles that are overt and seen in the world, but the miracles of changing our hearts, which are completely broken and shattered and rebellious that he would do that work inside of us. And Paul's prayer is that you would know and understand the fullness of God and his desire to love you and not just to love you and work in you, but to work through you because of the power that exists within the church. He connected us. This power, he connected the church with Christ. That is not separate, they're connected together. That God expects that Jesus came and established the church that we would live and exist within the same power that had the ability to raise him from the dead. we live as if we have no power at all we want to come into a place and come into a building and be entertained or maybe be challenged but then we walk out no different but Paul says this this fullness of God exists in the church this power this place has the ability this group of people has the ability to literally change our community and change the world not because of us but because of what God has done in Christ and he He has put this Holy Spirit inside of us. So students, when you walk the halls of your school... You have the ability to change that school, literally. I don't mean like part of it. I mean completely and literally. And I don't mean revival like you throw up a tent and hope people show up. I mean like people see the difference in you. And you're not living your life for academic success. Or you're not living your life for athletic success. But you're living your life for the glory of God. And you're so filled with the glory of God that people notice. And you have conversations with your friends that starts to change their life. And when those people start to get changed, other people start to notice. Because they, nobody thought they could be changed. But when God... God enters your heart and your life and you live to the fullness of him and you live that out in your school, your school can change because God's presence exists within you. Because you are the church. And as the church, we have connection with God through Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so then Paul continues on chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and he starts this idea of unity again because because after reminding us of this unity, he's going to ask us to do something. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, as we make this transition from theology to application. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And as we've said before, walk just simply means how you live your life. It's not like taking a walk or a stroll. It's how you live every moment and every day of your life. I urge you to live, to walk, to exist in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Remember that calling is to live in that power that Christ has put inside of you. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain. This is that sense of unity. We don't develop it, but we maintain it because God has given it to us. That we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he reminds us again, there's this oneness in us because of our relationship with Christ. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And he ends this section with one Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and who is in all. So Paul says, look, you have this unity we've been talking about because you believe the same faith. You believe in the same God. You believe in the same Christ who came to give you hope and give you strength. And so he's kind of rallying the troops and saying, you are one body. You are the body of Christ. Christ is the head and you are his body. And as the head, he tells you and leads you and feeds you everything you need for life and godliness. And I'm going to remind you to be one together because as one, you have the power and the ability to do things you never thought possible. Now to him who is able to do things that are unimaginable. As you are unified as one. And the church is the banner of unity. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that beacon in the night that just flashes for those who are hopeless. That says, There's a place of respite. It shines in the night for those who are broken and who are without hope. That says, There's a place I can go. Because these people love one another well. Even though they're different, even though they make difference. Levels of income, even though they have different businesses and jobs, even though they serve in different capacities, even though they look differently, even though their ages are different, even though their backgrounds are different, these people are united and they have something that brings them together, and I don't have it and I want to be a part of it. So Paul says, There's this power and this sense of unity, but I want you to do something with it. Because too many times we've been the frozen chosen, right? We've been these walls that nobody can penetrate. And everything good happens in here, but when you leave, nothing happens. It's like we have this sense of power in this place, and we leave, and we're scattered, and we think we don't have the ability to do anything. Remember, you are the church. The building and the facility is just structure and concrete and brick, and it will return to ash one day. And you are the church that has the power, whether you're gathered or whether you're scattered, whether we are corporate or whether you're individual, you have the power of Christ existing within you. And he says it's because of what God has done through this Holy Spirit that we have connection with. In verse 7, he says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now there's, there's this sense of, of saving power. And then there's this sense of gifting power, this this saving grace that God has given us that he's made available to anyone who would believe in Christ. But he also continues to give us other graces, and these graces are known as giftings. We call them spiritual giftings. That every single person that is in Christ has this gifting or, or multiple giftings that God has placed and planted inside of us. That when the Holy Spirit comes in our lives, he starts to unveil those and use those in ways that help benefit the church and benefit other people and benefit the community. But notice what Paul says here. He makes, again, a huge distinction. This is not giftings based on someone's ability. These are giftings based on the grace that God has given to each one of us, which means none of us did anything to deserve it. None of us did anything to warrant us having a different gift from someone else. And really, one gift is not better than the other. As us using our gifts to serve one another and serve our community. It's where the power lies. It's not in one individual gift. It is in the collection of gifts that God has brought together in a group of people. But we love to prioritize and compare giftings. Because it makes us feel better than our neighbor. Which destroys the unity that God said we're supposed to maintain to keep. So we should be eager to keep those. Let me, let me tell you, just this is not about me Take me out of it. But the role of pastor is just as important as the role of a greeter out in the parking lot. The role of a teacher is the same as someone who comes to your house in the middle of the night when you need someone to console you, to minister to you, to show you hospitality. It's the same. Really, in that moment, their gift is more important than mine. Because you don't need somebody to teach to, you need somebody to love you. And some people are really good at loving other people. I've had to learn to do that. (laughs) I like to say my gift of mercy was a negative five. (laughs) until God started to grow it and I asked him to do that and I don't do it I'll be honest with you I don't do it because it's natural for me I, know, I do it because I know it's important for other people some of you it just oozes out of you mercy it, you just can't help it it just comes out of you and in those moments when you need someone that's who you're looking for you're not calling me up <laughs> right you, you shouldn't call me up hey can I get a negative five to come over here and help me yeah, buddy, you should look for somebody else. So let me read you something that I wrote. Just I couldn't get it all out well, so I just wrote it down, and, and I hope this helps us a little bit. We tend to get caught up in the hierarchical, hierarchical structure of giftings and abilities. We compare the influence and scope of others' giftings, We look at the degree to which someone exercises and trains their gifting, which is entirely necessary and beneficial to be most effective. But we do that and determine the significance and value of our own. And in doing so, we infer our own identity and usefulness or uselessness based on the outward appearance and application of that giftedness. We love to compare. However, according to what Paul says, that these are graces, not abilities of each individual person or personality. Not a single person ever created their own gifting. All of it, all of them, including its sphere of influence, is according to and determined by God. Our role is to simply exercise what we have been given. And so Paul says you have the ability because of the graces that God has given you. He's given you a measure, which is a portion. And some of us like to argue or complain or whine, I didn't get enough. You know what he would tell you? Use what you have and I'll grow and I'll expand your influence. Use it faithfully, and I will grow that. Just like any muscle that you want to grow or to shrink, because some of us have bigger muscles here than others. (laughs) They're just hiding. You have to use it for it to grow. I remember when, you know, for 20 years of my life, I was in pretty good condition. In the next 20 years of my life, I was in terrible shape um and I, I tried every diet fad known to man right everything you could imagine I would try to try to lose 30 pounds in one run I mean literally my, I'd come back and my I'd just throw up everywhere my wife's like what are you doing you can't you can't do this in one day and I, that's me I want to microwave my health I just, just want to throw it in and come out you know 20 pounds less I'll work out all day if I could do that that would be great be fine with me And as I did, I I came across these exercises They were kind of these these full body or whole body exercises that, you know, the cult we love to hate, CrossFit, um, whether you love it or hate it. That's the way they approach exercise and health. It's full body. It's whole body. It's not just one muscle or another muscle. It's the entire group of people or group of muscles and ligaments working together to energize and strengthen the body. And so as I went through my my health and workout journey, I discovered those things were valuable and needed, not just taking off for a run or not just doing push-ups, but everything included in my body working together in unison and in sync and using things you never thought were possible or thought were valuable or even thought were there, right? You work out and you realize those muscles were there and they've been hiding for 40 years. (laughs) When the whole body works together, then your body begins to be strengthened and encouraged. And so Paul says, I've given each of you these giftings. It doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter that one might be different than the other. The goal is for each individual to use that gifting to grow that so that as the body works together, the entire body grows and is strengthened and its influence is pressed out for people to see and notice. And then you get an opportunity to tell people, this is how I changed. I didn't really do it. God did it in me. And so then Paul continues in, in verse 11 and 12. And he says, and he, Christ, gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you've heard this probably if you've grown up in church, you've heard this a thousand times. This is the role of the minister. This is the role of the leader. This is the role of the teacher is to equip the saints for ministry. And I know that's what it says in the text, but no matter what your tradition is, it's probably not happened in your context. And we like to say, this is the role of the minister. Oh, but the pastor is supposed to be everywhere. I mean, the role of the minister is to equip the saints, but if he doesn't come to the hospital, then it really doesn't matter even if 50 other people came to see me. Right? Right. You're you're quiet because you know it's true. You feel convicted. (laughs) And that that doesn't just fall on you. That falls on us. Because we've tried to be supermen and women and say, "I, I got it. I'm called to this. I'll do all this. When biblically, they're not called to be the hired hand. Your ministers are not called to be the hired hands who do all the work of ministry. That's actually antithetical to what biblically says our role is. It's completely opposite. We're not to to play every position on the field, our role is to be the coach to be the equipper. That doesn't mean ministers do not serve and minister. They absolutely do. But part of their role of ministry and the main role of their ministry is to be the primary equipper so that you would learn to work and exercise the muscles, the giftings, the measure that Christ has given you, that you would learn to exercise and grow those because if you don't grow those, the rest of the body can't grow. If you've ever seen somebody, I'm not picking, but if you've ever seen Popeye in the gym, he only works out one muscle, right? That's it. He looks so strange and so weird. And it's not healthy. It's not healthy for the body. And so Paul says, these these leaders, these apostles, these teachers and evangelists and shepherds, they've been given to you not because they're better. Actually, you play the game better than they do. you ever seen a 60-year-old football coach get on the field? It'd be ugly. Real fast. That's why you don't call me in the middle of the night when you need some mercy You call somebody that's on the field that knows how to play that role. And so Christ has given you a gift. Sometimes we don't seem like a gift, but Christ has given you a gift, and our role as ministers is to be that primary equipper, to teach and to train. What he calls are the saints, which includes all Christians and all believers and all of history and time, to equip them, to teach them, to train them so that they would play their role and they would strengthen the muscle and the gifting God has given them so that we work together. Now watch what he says happens when we work together. Remember in chapter 3, he prayed that we'd be filled with the fullness of God, that we'd be rooted and grounded so that we would know him well so that we could live out this life faithfully. Watch what happens when the whole body plays together, that it actually helps accomplish the prayer that Paul had for these people. Starting in verse 12 through 16 this is what he says he says all of this working together is for the building up of the body of Christ continuing in verse 13 he says until we all attain the unity there's that unity he's been talking about that we'd be built up until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, not just a little, but that we would grow to maturity, that we would grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's that, that, that value, this measure that he's given us, that we would grow to this fullness. We would grow into the image of Christ, not a little, but fully looking like and acting like and living like Christ so that we are no longer children tossed back and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but we'd be rooted and grounded like that tree This happens because we understand and know and walk with God, but as every part of the body plays its role and its structure and its function, we are growing into the fullness of Christ, and we are not immature but mature, and we're not tossed by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, instead of that, we are speaking the truth in love, and we grow up in every way, every part, every role, every muscle, every ligament into him who is the head, into Christ, and from whom the entire body, not just pieces and parts, but the entire body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped by the gifting of ministers and leaders and teachers to equip you that as you are equipped, when each person is playing its part and working properly, this is what it does. It makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up in love. Not that we have the ability, but it's not just a few ministers talking at you or teaching you, but as you serve your capacity and your role, this gifting that God has given you to the measure and the fullness of Christ, which is grace in and of itself, then you are a part of strengthening the body. Not my teaching, not my leadership, not my direction, but you have a hand in strengthening this body to bring about and keeping this unity and rooting and grounding other people in their faith. So I'm going to say something that sounds heretical, but I believe it's fully true. To some degree, your individual growth is reliant on how someone else plays out their role in gifting within this body of people. Now, God can do anything he wants, and he can grow you in other ways, but I fully believe that to some degree, your ability to grow into mature manhood is at least partially reliant on how someone else chooses to live out the measure of grace God has given them in that spiritual gifting. If you don't have somebody to love you, if you don't have somebody to teach you, you can't grow effectively. Now, the Holy Spirit can do anything he wants to do, but the way God has decided to design and structure his church is that we would be reliant and dependent upon one another with the Holy Spirit to bring about this growth within the church. Just go back and read it. That's exactly what he says. And the problem is we say, well, somebody else will do that. I'm not good enough. Somebody else will take care of that. I don't don't have time right now in this season. Somebody else will handle that. They're better than me. And what we do is we fool ourselves thinking that our passive attendance is what we need in this season of life to help us grow and really what we're doing is causing weakness within the body and what we don't really understand is happening is not only are we causing someone else's maturity to stay immature we're also allowing our own to do the same because it's in those moments when you live out your faith and you use the gifting that God has given you that you not only help someone else grow but in the process you grow as well we fool ourselves thinking passive attendance and listening to a guy like me for 40 minutes every week is what will help us grow. What will help you grow more than anything is studying the word of God that shows you that you are and you have the power to live out this ability and this gifting to serve other people. And when you do, that's when your growth will be transformational. That's when it'll be exponential. You ask anybody that's ever been, been asked to teach anything whether it's kids or adults or whatever it might be or economics or finance, every time you have to teach, you learn more than you do when you listen. When you use your giftings, is when God will use you to grow. You will have a dual purpose of growing yourself and growing someone else in this body of people. And we fool ourselves into thinking that this passive attendance is really what's best for me. And honestly, it's not only not best for the church, it's not best for you either. We've just thought, This is the best way for me to grow in this time and this season of my life. And I'll tell you this too. To not use your gifts in whatever local church God has you, whether it's this one or another one, I would say and I believe to not use your gifts is to weaken the strength and the influence of that local body. And so you're not just being passive, you're being detrimental. Now, this isn't a you better sign up to serve someone somewhere this Sunday or you're going to be dogged every week until then. (laughs) Only the Holy Spirit can say that to you, okay? And I'm praying he does. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) This is not about you playing a role in this specific church. This is you having a right understanding of what church is. It's It's not a theater or a place to entertain. It's a place that the body would be strengthened by one another. And as we go out, we would strengthen our community. With Christ as well so I want to show you a video of two of our eighth grade girls who were tasked at school to do a project on really the structure of what church is wherever church they attended and two of our girls that go to Decatur Heritage decided they were going to do their project on LifePoint and it's really interesting and, and really neat to see them gain this understanding of what it means to be church you guys watch
1: My name is Isabella Clifton, I'm in the 8th grade and I go to school at Decatur Heritage Christian Academy. My name is Kinley Terry, I'm in the 8th grade and I go to school at Decatur Heritage Christian Academy. Our school project was assigned to us by Ms. Paula Armstrong. So we had a two-page paper that we had to write and then we had a 20-slide PowerPoint that we turned in and we also had an interview that we did with Gabe Ross and Martin Miller. We were told that the church has only been around for nine years, which we thought was pretty crazy. Um, But we also found out that, um, like what our different stages of leadership are and how roles are assigned to different people. We found out like, I don't know, I guess just how LifePoint was in the beginning compared to how it was now. Uh, It was interesting to me because uh, in our grade there's a ton of people that go to like First Bible and Decatur Presbyterian Church, and it's very different here than it is at those churches, so to hear the differences and then to watch their PowerPoint versus ours, and to see the different ways that we worship, but how we're all still worshiping one God, it was really cool. So we were, we at our interview with Gabe, we were like, hey, it'd be kind of cool if we went to one of the staff meetings, let's ask him if we can. He told us we could that next Wednesday. So we went to the staff meeting and the first thing they did is they watch a video on like the different levels of leadership that a church could have and we were listening to how Gabe wants to work towards that and how he believes that um, he can't be on the stage 52 days a year or else the church will not be able to grow. It's really smart because he's right if, if he's on the stage 52 days a year he doesn't have time to um, teach and bring up younger students and younger people to preach the next church. The ways that students are involved and us, I mean, we are part of the congregation, so of course we're involved in that way. And then we're also, since we're students, we do get the chance to serve down here. If students don't serve, they're not going to be able to go in their faith. Because serving that gives them an opportunity to indulge in their faith and, like, work with other people and learn how to fellowship with them. And it also gives them a chance to learn how to be leaders and how to grow. Um, ties back to the leadership thing. If we want another campus, you're going to have to bring up a next generation. And if we don't bring up another generation to lead, the church is going to die out and there's not going to be a church left. I think it's important because when you want to tell others about Christ, you've got to start somewhere. Like You can't just go to the other side of the world and start telling people about Christ if you've never done it in your own neighborhood. So to be able to start here at a young age and learn is a really good starting step for people. So, my favorite part about getting to serve is interacting with the kids. I don't like coming down and seeing one kid feeling left out. I always want them to have fun and be a group together, because if they're not, then they're just not going to have fun overall, and they're going to tell their parents they didn't like it. And, you know, you want the kids, that you want them to have fun, because if they're not going to have fun, they're not going to want to learn because the fun it ties together because down in the seeds area they play games that tie with the Bible story and they just they teach you something and you learn a lot from the kids too yeah uh, my favorite part of serving is definitely watching the kids as they grow in their faith because I mean they're kids they're gonna tell you what they think so to hear what they believe and what they think about the Bible and about what they've learned that day is really cool to me because everybody, of course, takes uh, takes different sermons and different lessons. They all take it different ways. So to hear how one kid gets it versus how another kid gets it is really cool to me. So for our project, we had to present our PowerPoint to the whole class. Miss Armstrong was very impressed with our project and she said that she was very interested with the church's history and how it has changed, but she also uh, said that we presented very well. We got 100. Uh, there was only two groups that got 100 on it, so that was pretty good. And so then she emailed Ms. Ross telling her that she thought we did really good, and it should be presented to the church. So here we are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I told you that, yeah, go ahead. That's awesome. So I told you, I wasn't going to tell you you had to sign up, but I let the Holy Spirit use 8th grade girls to tell you. I'm just kidding. But that's, that's what church is. That we are teaching and training other people how to use the giftedness, the, the personality, the skills, the abilities that God has given you to serve one another and to serve his church and to serve his purposes in the world. And so our encouragement to you today is, is not that you would run out and sign up to be a greeter today. Um, the opportunity is there, of course, but that you would start asking, okay, God, you've, you've given me this grace, this gifting, this measure of serving other people. What is it and how can I use it to bring you glory in the world? And remember that you have the power that, create, that raised Christ from the dead to use that gifting to serve other people in ways that you never thought were possible. And so if you want to ask some questions today, uh, we'd love to talk with you. I'll be at the front, and um, John, our executive pastor, will be here as well. If you want to stop in the, in the back and ask questions too to say, I, how do I even start to pray to ask to know what those giftings are? We would love the opportunity just to talk with you about that. You guys stand and worship this amazing and great God. He's given us grace for salvation and grace to serve one another.